You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. I have a question. Well, what's that? Why, given every other possible option, does a man choose the life of a paid assassin? Well, it was that or the priesthood. <laughs> Information is all. Is it not? For example, you must know by now that the double O program is officially dead. <laughs> Which leads me to speculate exactly why you came. So, James, why did you come? I came here to kill you. And I thought you came here to die. Well, it's all a matter of perspective. Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's local watering hole. We're coming to you live here from Casino Royale. Just chilling, hanging out, having a few Vespers. Uh, I think Norm has ordered a very, very pricey McAllen or something like that. And, uh, John, are you still sticking with tea tonight? Or? Pretty much, yeah. I'm pretty much on tea yeah. for right now. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you know. It's yeah, okay. Yeah. Just like Q, you got your nice Earl right. Grey ready to go. The tea is Darjeeling, but the water is from a spring in Tibet. <laughs> so good exactly oh man well as everybody i'm sure is aware uh we are going to be talking about specter tonight as we have made our way through the craig films and we have finally gotten to this moment uh which i know we were so excited to hit so before we dive in just want to remind everybody of course you know the 602 club is part of the trek fm network we have over 20 different shows on the network talking about all things star trek and everything beyond star trek with the 602 club you can find us at itunes.com slash trek fm you can also find us online at trek fm so that's trek.fm online we're on twitter at trek fm and facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm if you would like to send us an email about your thoughts on Spectre or any of the other Craig films or any Bond film or anything else we talk about here, just go to trek.fm slash contact. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, we actually got our first voicemail. We're going to play it on the show tonight. Just go to the sidebar on the show page or go to speedpipe.com slash trek.fm, and we will tell you about the Babel Conference later. But guys, I want to dive right in because we have, I think, just a ridiculous amount we want to talk about with Spectre. Um, before we even get there, I just kind of want to ask you guys, we are all looking forward to this. Just kind of round robin real quick. Did you like it or do we need to talk about it, John? <laughs> um, I did like it. It's kind of yeah, strange. I, it, it's... I think it hit my expectation for what I thought the movie would be, what kind of movie it would be. Um Things that I thought were going to happen did happen. Reveals were made that I thought would be revealed. Um, at the same time, well, I, maybe we should save this for the very end. Maybe I wasn't as beside myself as I was with a movie like Skyfall. Um, but it it's right up there. I, I think it I think it did pretty much what it needed to do as a movie. So um, I will go see it again. I, I feel a little underprepared that I've only seen it once before doing tonight's show. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was great fun. What about you, Norm? 
No, I absolutely loved it. And I think it's actually kind of neat, John, that both you and I have only seen it once because I think now we can report on on what our instincts were when we were watching it, what we felt that we mm-hmm. were going to get out of the film, the anticipation of the film. I think the most difficult thing, though, in today's day and age, and I just want to I want to make this a very clear point before we move forward. It's very difficult to be surprised in movies anymore nowadays because of all of the spoilers, whether you're not or you're paying attention to them or not, they will eventually permeate your life in some form or another. That being said, I wanted to be so surprised at certain things and I kind of was and it, I knew that things were going to happen in a certain way and certain characters were going to fold in a certain way, but the, it's the very same way that I felt about Benedict Cumberbatch in Star Trek 2013. Or when you have somebody like Bill Paxton on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., when you have really big names associated with movies, they are the biggest bullseye ever in a movie because Mm -hmm. you don't get big names like that unless you're going to have a huge reveal. And I think that's kind of already letting the air out of the balloon in a way before that reveal happens. So that's the only real kind of issue that I had with the movie, but the rest of the movie, I felt that it was a bond movie that I wanted. I felt that it was in the right progression of the character. I thought that the production value was superb and I'm even a champion of John's, but also, (laughs) (laughs) but a champion of the opening credit sequences as well so and i know that not a Mm. lot of people were on board with uh the title song when they first heard it but i thought it did actually what it needed to do in context so first Mm. impressions i absolutely loved the film as i walked out the door and i think that that's i think that's a true sign of a movie and i will see it again Mm -hmm. well i have seen it twice so i'm in a different position than both of you and and uh, these days for me as I walk into a film, just anybody who's listening, especially a movie like this that I really want to see, I'm always very trepidatious. I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm paying attention to every single thing that I can as I'm seeing it the first time. And my whole goal is to try and figure out, okay, what's going on and do I like it? Because it's something that I've wanted to have happen for so long. And with this movie, what was great going back the second time is... I liked it coming out of the first time, and the second time I was able to allow everything to just kind of wash over me and just experience it then and enjoy it and pick up on all the things that I enjoyed and allow that to take me further. And so for me, I I really enjoyed this movie. You know, my expectation going into the film was that it would be better than Quantum. I I think that Mm -hmm. as long as it's better than... It was kind of like for me, and everybody will probably argue with me. You can do it later, but this is my explanation. I wanted the Crystal Skull to be better than Temple of Doom. As long as that was the possibility for me, I was going to come out happy. I thought it was. Therefore, that movie was okay to me. That's how I felt about this one. I just need it to be better than the one Craig movie that wasn't quite as good as the other two. And this was gangbusters awesome for me. I really enjoyed Spectre, and the more that I have thought about it, the more that I have liked it. So I just kind of wanted to talk about that and and have everybody kind of set where they were. And then as we talk about it, I think, too, we, we may even find things we liked about it better or or we might think about something critically and be like oh yeah that so i'm excited this movie 
definitely does an interesting thing because all the Craig movies, as we have talked about, are continuing Bond and the evolution of this character from blunt instrument to surgical strike knife. You know, that's what this character has kind of become. Uh, maybe not so much in Mexico City, but, uh, you know, he's he's getting better. And I wanted to talk for you guys, as this character has evolved, what were some of the big things that you saw just as even this character and the type of film became a little bit more like especially the early bit of the movie feels a little bit more like uh, from Russian with love or something like that, that very early Connery film. What did you guys think about the evolution of the character and the evolution of the Craig Bond? Well, I, you know, we talked about this on uh, the last show and, and I feel like that really was, it was my expectation, but I think it was a lot of people's expectations about what this movie would be. At the end of Skyfall, if M had said, here's a dossier, here's your next assignment, it's fill in the blank, it's Dr. No, it's from Russia with Love, it's Goldfinger, it's Thunderball, it would have made sense. Because what we've done the last three movies is take apart Bond and put them back together. And I knew that going into Spectre, that was all that movie really had to do. You're kind of talking about your expectation, Matt, and uh, and the expectation that if this movie is better than another movie, then it will have succeeded in what I wanted. And what I wanted out of this movie was to say, okay, now that we've justified all the things that make Bond Bond, now we're going to put him back in some of, in kind of the the classic situations that he's been in, and all those things that we did to the character now inform who he is and how he behaves on that kind of mission. As unbelievable as those missions are, <laughs> and that's kind of fine. That's that's kind of the fun of it. Um, but yeah, that that's all I think I really knew was going to happen in this movie is that this was going to be a return back to that style. And all the little hints are in there, all the little uh, uh, character moments and references, some explicit, some not as, you know, hit you over the head, um, that say, now Bond is back where he was. But now we've got a better understanding of who that guy Bond is. You know, it's interesting as I watch the film that you're almost kind of like going through the mental checklist of what you've learned from Casino Royale to Quantum of Solace to Skyfall, and now to Spectre. The one thing that really opened up the movie perfectly for me and told me, informed me as, as, a, as an audience member where they were going with this film, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the very first time in all the Daniel Craig films that we had the opening gun barrel sequence at the very beginning of the movie. It is. That is correct, yeah. So, like you said, John, and Matthew, like we've said before in previous shows... The very end of Skyfall basically leads into the very next movie. And the very next movie, traditionally, every single time we have seen a James Bond from the past, it opens up with the gun barrel sequence. That is, that is the telltale sign of where you are and what you're going to be watching. It is the calling card of a James Bond film. I also felt at the very beginning of the movie, there was a very really deep spiritual connection to From Russia with Love and to Thunderball, particularly the parallel between the Mexico City sequence and the Mardi Gras sequence in Thunderball. Mm-hmm. I felt yeah. that right there, they are kind of borrowing, but in a new and 
interesting way to bring up this type of stalking motif that Bond does with his eventual target. And I thought that was done really well. And it got you invested in what he's going to do and how far he's come as an agent. But he hasn't come quite as far as we wanted him to because of some of the mishaps that happened. But he's still he's still a work in progress. Until Daniel Craig is done, in my opinion, Bond is still a work in progress. Well, and, and to me, that's the thing that makes this so interesting. I've seen some articles out there, and I haven't read them because I didn't really care to read them because the title alone annoyed me. But, like, Bond doesn't need an origin story. Right, and right. I'm so sorry. But I think, and, and Norm, you and I have talked about this extensively because you know how I love to see things played out on screen. And I like to see how a character becomes the character. I love that we've finally gotten an origin story for Bond. I mean, after all the films... For all these years, for over 50 years, we're finally telling a story that's about the character of Bond. Like, Bond movie is about Bond. Novel idea! Like, and, and that's what this whole series has been about, is about, let's actually dive into the character that we only know very little about. You know, we, we don't know a ton about his background. We don't know about how he became this. I mean... Even the brilliant question that Madeline Swan asks him, like, how does somebody choose to be an assassin? Like, why, what leads you to lead, lead that life and why do you keep leading it? You know, like, nobody's asked this question of Bond before in this way and, and expected an actual answer. So um, I, I, this whole thing to me, I'm sorry, but characters yes they need an origin story and you know what makes this one great is we've never seen it before this isn't superman mm -hmm. or batman or the 12th spider-man or something like that no this is the bond origin story that we've never seen before and i think I'm that's sorry, exciting I just, I just want to punctuate that a bit with some of the comparisons that some of the social mediaites out there have been throwing in front of specter and i think that it's important to say that the Bourne trilogy is an origin story. And people love the Bourne trilogy and say that this is the modern James Bond before Daniel Craig's James Bond came out. They also love the Mission Impossible stories. The Mission Impossible stories are origin stories of Ethan Hunt and his Mission Impossible team. These are all developmental processes within a singular character's story that people seem to accept more in today's day and age, more than James Bond. And I think what you're talking about is the reason why. Everyone accepts that James Bond is James Bond. I don't understand why people have a harder time accepting the fact that we are re... Not even relearning. We are learning what made James Bond. Why he can do the things he does. Why he is able to emotionally disconnect himself or emotionally detach himself or progress in a certain way as a character it's because you're giving him the opportunity to evolve as an actual human being and a person who's making choices as opposed to creating this avatar of what the male ego should be and i think that's super important in today's type of storytelling with given the opportunity that you can tell that story well taking a character from being a static character to a dynamic character 
that's really what's happening here, and that's what I have loved about, and that's what made it so relevant for the first time. Bond is relevant again because he's actually talking about himself as a character, but that's also a, f- a reflection of where we are in our time and place, and I think that's what makes it so interesting. The The evolution of this character you know, Bond is still kind of a misogynist. He's he's he drinks too much, um, all those things. But yet, this Bond has a heart that those other Bonds don't. And I will say, except for I think, probably on Her Majesty's Secret Service, um, where Bond was allowed to expand his horizons to really fall in love to have a personal story beyond just the mission but something else that that allowed somebody to to get in you know to get in that chink in the armor and i think what's great about the craig bond is we've all been observing bond through the chink in the armor because we're actually watching bond put the armor on throughout all of these films about what's going to make him the super cool super spy down the road. And, and it just, to me, that's just fascinating. I think that's what happened to Brosnan's Bond and why he kind of became irrelevant is that he just got so uber cheesy that there wasn't anything for anyone in this day and age to grab onto. And people just didn't resonate with that anymore. So... Um, you brought up the born identity and that whole thing. That's a very personal story, you know, about a guy trying to figure out who he is. And in some ways, they kind of did that with Bond, a character trying to figure out who he is and how he fits into this double world. So, well, let's just mention that that's a, a really difficult thing to do. You know, um, the stakes of a movie are much different than the stakes of a TV show. This is the kind of character redevelopment that you get over a long arc on a TV show. When you make a movie, it comes out, and then a couple of years go by, and then another movie comes out, and you've got that couple of hours to grab the audience and hope that they like it and will want to come back to see it again in a couple of years. So this to do something this complex... And, and this long of an arc over this many movies and still have those movies kind of sort of stand on their own, some standing on their own better than others, is no small feat. That, that is a real, um, that's sort of a, a remarkable undertaking for a writer and then to be able to kind of convince the powers that be to say, no, this is the way we're going to make these movies. And they will stretch out over four stories that come out over a nearly 10 year period. Let's hope it's five. I'm crossing my fingers. Yeah, right. So, uh, <laughs> right, well, one right. of the the biggest things in this film is that apparently uh, they're like Marvel and it's all connected. And so this film, Spectre, connects all the previous Craig Bond films together as that Spectre and... Spoiler alert, because we're going to spoil this movie rotten, that Blofeld is the one who's been behind all of this. So as Bond has been rising in the ranks uh, as double O, that Blofeld has been rising in the ranks as a supervillain. And finally, it's time for these two to meet. Um, and, And so I wanted to ask you guys first, 
how do you feel about the idea that this movie is connecting all of these things? And then we'll talk about uh, the Blofeld character now. He connects to Bond. But how does the linking of everything as one fluid chain from Casino all the way to Spectre work for you guys? I, I think I'm actually going to sort of answer the second question first because <laughs> <laughs> I hate to do that and mess up your mojo, Matt. But um, It's okay. It's okay. okay. Ruby's serving the good um, stuff. The, the fact is that, you know, I was so sold on Christopher Waltz and I was so sold on him being Blofeld that honestly the linking of the other villains stopped mattering to me that much. Now, not that it wasn't interesting and and not that I'm not glad they did that um, because I, I think it's an interesting way for you to look at those movies in retrospect and go, okay, well, you know, even with the Silva thing, we don't really have to say that he was part of it, but okay, but but he was. And and Spectre is a, a bigger deal than anybody had thought, and, and its tentacles are everywhere. It helps to explain a scene like, um, uh, well, you know, the interrogation at the opening of Quantum. Yes, and, and why, yes. You know, why you've got a guy there who can do that. Um, it helps to explain um, a guy like Le Chiffre and, mm-hmm. and what the stakes are for him, who he's working for. So that's cool. You kind of go through and put that together in your mind. But honestly, we've come so full circle and we've put Bond back where he belongs, which is facing the ultimate bad guy that connecting the dots was just sort of, it was just sort of the icing on the really giant delicious cake anyway. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Absolutely. But the funny thing is, the funny thing is about Spectre is that you have to take a look all the way back to how you felt about Casino Royale because as soon as they introduced Le Chiffre, if you have done your homework, or even if you didn't do your homework, if you're not that big of a Bond fan, you knew that somewhere along the line, there's going to be a bigger payoff. Spectre, in my opinion, as a movie, was created to really celebrate where Bond is going and to celebrate the Bond fans that have come along this entire journey. It works on two different levels. It works on the level for people who just enjoy these Bond movies that have just come along for the Daniel Craig ride. But I think in a deeper sense, it really does pay great homage to everything that has come before, everything that has inspired us up until this point. And from the Shifra to Green to Mr. White, you knew, especially from Quantum of Solace, you knew that Spectre was eventually coming. You knew mm-hmm. that Ernst Stavro Blofeld was eventually coming. It's a catchy name. It is. <laughs> <laughs> On his mother's it's side. From his, it's from his mother's side, yeah. <laughs> but you knew eventually that that was going to happen. It wasn't like it's going to, this was this huge surprise that came out of nowhere. 90% of the people that watch this series, I'm making that up. I'm completely making that up. I'm going to say 90%. 90% of the people that have come along for this ride have either have heard about Spectre and Blofeld or have learned about Spectre and Blofeld from learning it from the internet. Because, again, there's this giant organization. It's always been Bond's great foil. And at the very top of this organization, the pinnacle, the octopus's head, is Blofeld. So it's not... It's not an unreasonable request for people to say, hey, okay, let's make that movie. Let's take it. Let's boil it all up, culminate it to that point, and serve it up in a very 
reasonable and respectable and logical manner. Mm-hmm. Well, and to me, what it does is that it connects with the Connery films in the way that you didn't know who was behind everything until, what, a couple of movies in? And in, in Goldfinger, you, you really learn who's behind things, that there's this specter, you know, that because it before it's Smirch. 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 Mm-hmm. And then it's Spectre. <laughs> and so it's almost the same thing. You know, you've got Quantum, and then you've got Spectre. And right. um, the fact that all of those films are, are subtly controlled by this shadowy figure that you barely see in the movie... Um, and honestly, we never get a good payoff with, uh, at least after what happens in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, but who loves you, baby? Who yeah, loves you? That's right. <laughs> uh, actually, personally, that's that. Everybody, that's my favorite blow film. Uh, I know everybody will hate the great it, Telly Savalas, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. He's, he's he's so who loves good you, baby. in that that role. Um, anyway, that's besides the point. We'll talk about that sometime next year. Uh, but. What I love is is this connection because like you said, John, what it really does is it actually just helps fill in plot holes from the other films. Mm-hmm. So yeah, especially right. when we're we'll, when we'll talk about uh, C and um, what they're doing and all that part of the the storyline, it it gives you an opportunity to understand how people can know what they know. In those films. And some people will be like, well, I shouldn't have to have another movie tell me that. But in the spy world, too, it's like you got to accept some things don't always add up. And what I like about Spectre is it just makes things add up better. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe Mm -hmm. that's bad writing and people just jump on me for that. But I just like it. I think it's great. Um, And it makes sense. Like you said, John, I knew it was coming. You know, I I knew that somehow this was probably going to be linked. And the fact that it's all linked together, that as Bond is taking down Blofeld's operations and causing him a royal pain in the ass, well, Blofeld is causing him a royal pain in the heart. You know, is, is... it? You know, he's taking away business opportunities. Blofeld is taking away what means the most to bond in this world and very little means a lot to bond in this world, but something like M or Vesper or any of those things, those are the things that mean something to him. And Blofeld is a part of taking those things away. And I think that again, that's a great, more personal story. And all of these bond films have been much more personal because again, they're about bond. So that's why you make the villain personal for him you make it really personal not just for him but as we talked about with skyfall for britain again britain is finding itself under attack so i again i really really like this and that we're we're bringing it all back to the place where bond began and and that's in britain and i think it makes for a great story having that all connected an interesting question that I I have for you guys though is that what do you think of making Hans Oberhauser this this person obviously from the books we know that he was the one who did take care of of Bond as a child uh, you've got even got the quote here Norm from Octopussy mm-hmm. where he talks about Oberhauser was a wonderful man 
Uh, he's something of a father to me when at the time I needed one. But that he had a son named Franz that turns into Blofeld. How do you guys feel about them making that connection? Does that work for you? The connection worked. It caused me a little bit of concern, though, because now we have so neatly tied up all of Bond's world and we have raised the stakes so high and we have made everything so deeply personal. It made me wonder about the next movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because really any now it, it, this is so full of spoilers, it's not even funny. We I, I hope that you've got a big red banner on this episode that says you are about to be spoiled like crazy, so do not listen to this unless you have watched the movie. Spoilers. Blofeld lives in the end of um, of this movie of Spectres, so we know that the opportunity is there for him to come back. But it kind of made me worry, like, okay, how do you raise the stakes again? How do you make it personal again? How do you make me care about Bond's particular struggle again? Because this sort of... It sort of hit all the right notes for me in getting Blofeld back into play and getting, you know, continuing this idea of Bond being my concern, the character of Bond being my concern, and then everything going with M- uh, uh, MI6 and, and its potential demise. But now it's back because we've we've gotten rid of the CNS, um, at least as it was. So I, I think it all works very nicely, but... But where do we go from here? (laughs) You know, that was my only real genuine worry at the end of this movie. I think because they made it such a point that Bond had to make a choice. He chose a path that he is not, that he's not truly comfortable with. But I think it's something that he is trying to do. He's trying to be normal. And I think that's something that Blofeld will eventually exploit in the next Mm -hmm. film in some way or another. Bond is not allowed to be happy in Blofeld's eyes. He is not allowed to succeed. Bond's happiness means that Bond has succeeded. He has stolen everything from from Franz, from that original life. He stole the happiness that he had with his father. In turn, he was able to wedge himself in in a relationship that the only relationship that probably meant anything to Franz. And then now he's winning because as this paragon of righteousness and virtue, he has also been thwarted uh, he thwarted Blofeld, and now he is walking away with the girl in the sunset with the great car and all the trimmings and trappings of him winning. So mm-hmm. that cannot be allowed to happen in the next movie. <laughs> and I think that does steer us towards something along the lines of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And But that, you know, that, that's a lot of speculation. Mm-hmm. But going back to... Mm-hmm. Did that? Did the character of, of Franz Oberhauser work for me? I think it did. And I think that if I watch the movie again, I think it will even more so because when you really boil it down, every great hero has a great personal villain. And every great hero in some way has forged that villain to become so closely connected to him that they have reached these legendary stratospheres of of almost like mythic proportions, Superman and Lex Luthor, Spider-Man and the Green Goblin, Batman and the Joker, Captain America and the Red Skull. They are all personally connected. So whether it's by coincidence or whether it's by 
Franz tracking James at every level in his life before he inserts himself into that life again, those two will always be a parallel, a mirror image to each other. James T. Kirk in the Klingon Empire. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, it's that it's, I know that it's a little too contrived for some, but in order for you to really create a great hero, you have to have is almost mirror opposite in a villain. I think what you're saying, Norman, is that we, we all have our own personal El Guapo. Uh, <laughs> but, but for some people, it really is the real El Guapo. It is the El Guapo. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think you just named John the show. John Champion wins this podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I got you just named the show time. Personal El Guapo. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Um, well, what I like about what you're saying, Norm, is that in the end, for Bond, Blofeld is his Lex Luthor. You know that. that He's not going to beat him physically, but right. it's about his brains, his smarts, everything else, that the information that he holds. And so, really... That's who he becomes to to bond here, and I, I think it's that's the scariness of of his character too, and what he's doing. Like he's completely amoral, and all he's doing is is trying to like the brain from thinking the brain. He's going to take over the world, and he's got evil motivations for it. So, I I think it's a really great thing. Like you guys are saying, our heroes that we hold in high esteem like Superman or Batman or something like that they are defined by the villains that they face and those villains like you said are almost always personal and as our voicemail said from Lee that we'll talk about at the very end of the show this is the British superhero and Bond's ultimate villain has always been Blofeld, especially with, like you brought up, with Honor Majesty's Secret Service and what happens. So John asked the question of where does it go? How do you make it personal again for Bond? I think that's probably how they make it personal for Bond again, unfortunately, in the same way, except this time we're actually going to see the payoff because that yeah. never really comes in the uh, the earlier Bond films. It just, it becomes a farce. Uh, in, in my opinion, nothing happened to Blofeld in this movie that Blofeld didn't already prepare for. He wanted everything to happen. That's how Blofeld operates. He puts Bond in that false sense of security where he's going to let his guard down. And in boxing terms, we call it the knockout punch you didn't see. He's coming from so many obtuse angles that Bond... Bond is, you know, it's kind of like what we saw in Casino Royale. The Bond that we know runs right through drywall to get to his, his, his prey, his, his quarry. You know, he'll, he'll run right to you. He doesn't come from angles. That's not his style. That's the other side. That's the side of... That's the yin to, to Stavro's yang or, or Blofeld's yang. He comes from so many different angles in Le Chief, in Green... In Silva, Bond is like fighting a multidimensional war that he just can't mentally prepare for, no matter how good the information is to him. Blofeld is everywhere, as Mm -hmm. Mr. White says. Cut off one tentacle, there's always another one. That's right. So, yeah, I like like that a lot. 
I do think it's interesting because I also think that they've given us an opportunity to see Blofeld in a place as a villain that we haven't in the next film if he does come back, which I'm sure he will. And hopefully Craig decides he wants to come back and fulfill that contract because they have a really awesome story to tell that we don't necessarily know the end of and the way it's going to play out in the sense that we've never seen Blofeld captured We've never seen him in that side, um, you know, and how all that would work, how he would get out. Obviously, he's probably got agents everywhere still, but this just, I think it creates a great story that, I don't know, if you're a Bond fan, you kind of got to be salivating for. Yeah, it, it it raises really good questions. I mean, we, we saw the ultimate, you know, Norman just said on Her Majesty's Secret Service, we, we kind of saw the ultimate personal attack on Bond. And it's kind of, you know, you think about this history that Bond and uh, Oberhauser have, and you go, wow, the, this guy has spent nearly 40 years, uh, really wrecked that much about his daddy issues that he's going to, you know, ascend the ranks of this incredible criminal organization and spend a lot of time and effort just going after this one guy. That's, that's pretty intense. Um, but, but, we have the brilliant Christoph Waltz to actually make us believe that any lesser actor would not have made me believe that. So it's kind of a real coup that we have that there to to, to hold it all together. Cuckoo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and I mentioned this earlier in the show, but the toughest thing about a movie nowadays is to try and hold its secrets because as soon as they did the casting call and they did the press junket, I mean, you had... You know, had Monica Bellucci, who was fantastic to see. You know, had Leah Sadu, you know, who was fantastic to see. And all of the, you know, Ralph Fiennes coming back, and Naomi Harris, and Ben Wishaw. But then you have Christoph Waltz, mm-hmm. multi-Academy Award winning and, winning and nominated Christoph Waltz. You don't bring a guy like this into a movie that's supposed to reach or exceed the expectations of Skyfall and not cast him as the character. You know, it's like in twenty in Star Trek twenty thirteen and in Into Darkness, you're you're bringing in Benedict Cumberbatch. You know, who's this also this at at right now at his, the point of his career is already a legend, and he's playing a no name character. Come on, <laughs> you know. So it's tough because there are so many different examples of this that go, that happen in Hollywood. When Jeremy Renner was cast in Mission Impossible Four as an analyst? No. I'm sorry. Mm. You don't sell that. He's too good of an actor to try and act that down, to ramp that down and not make that great appearance as, you know, the the the, the turn in the story. So, I think it's difficult now with the way that social media can capture and elevate all these different stories and say, "Hey, look who's starring in what's in in so and so movie." Well, that person's way above this movie's pay grade. Why is he there? Oh, wait a second. Aren't they supposed to reveal the greatest villain ever in James Bond history? Oh, let's put that two and two together, you know? Right. But I do think, too, what's great about this film is that it does not take him out of the picture. It doesn't take him out of the game. It allows that decision at the end of the movie, which was... Phenomenal that Bond, just think about this, at the beginning of his run as Bond, 
Alt-M is so pissed about all the time is that he keeps killing everyone. So they can't get any information out of him. Not only does Bond not kill him for all of of the reasons that are very personal to him, but he also doesn't kill him, I think, for other reasons that are very strategic. Like, it's probably better to have this guy alive than to just kill him and lose all that he knows. We've got to be able to find something. And and that's what I, I again, when I was thinking about character evolution, that's a character or evolutionary moment there for me and Bond. It's not that he's just going to choose the girl in the end, but he's also choosing to let that that villain live just as M was talking about. Having a license to kill means you also have a license not to kill. And it's That's about a really good point. And yeah. it's about knowing when to kill and why to kill and and if it's right thing to do to pull that trigger. And I don't think Bond even though he's out of bullets, he's got plenty of other ways to kill him at that moment, like snapping his neck uh, or any other way. I don't think that he thinks it's the right move to kill Blofeld. And, of course, I'm sure that'll come back to haunt him. <laughs> but yes, it's still it's an interesting character development moment for all we've known about this Craig Bond who does a lot more killing of people and a lot less of letting them live. And that's an interesting progression. You can't deny us the opening of the next movie, which will have Bond walking around from scene to scene, person to person, saying, where's Blofeld? Right. <laughs> right. It'll have to happen. Or the new CNS building being breached in some way. You know? Right, so, right. Because yeah. it, we've seen so many great origin stories. And, and going back to Skyfall, you know, we finally saw the relationship start with Q and with Moneypenny. Those are Skyfall, in a way, was their origin story. And M, Mallory. Spectre, apropos title, is Blofeld's origin story movie. You know, it's not so mm-hmm. much Bond's story anymore. You have to start creating the story for all of these other characters, or else they just become Dr. Evil. Yeah. They just become, you know, these cartoonish avatars of of assumed personalities of assumed histories and the amalgamation of everything that you've, you've learned from Chinese whispers from 1960, when was Dr. No 63, 62, 62, 63 to now. And that's really all that probably a modern audience knows of Blofeld is the guy with the scarred lazy eye and the white cat. Mm -hmm. There is so much more there that you can mine. And I think that it's, it's really courageous of this new team to create an origin story for probably an part of the audience that's going to not be on board with that idea, but for an audience that needs to understand who this character is and how they, this new audience, this new James Bond audience is going to usher in the next phase of films. Well, and we have made this point before. I think we were talking about Supergirl when we were talking about this, but these Bond films aren't just for Bond fans. They're for all the new Bond fans that they've created, and not all of them are familiar with all, you know, 20-some-odd films before we got to Craig. And that's what makes it so interesting 
you know, even on the Babel Conference, Norm, we were talking, and uh, one of our listeners had said that her first Bond film was actually Skyfall. That's Emily first, said that. Yeah. I'm going to mention her on air. Emily yep. wow. said that. That's wow. the first movie that she saw in the Bond franchise. So she doesn't have the baggage. She doesn't understand, and and it's not her. She she loved the movie. She really enjoyed it. She you know wanted to continue to see more. She's watched the other Craig films and wants to go back and watch the other ones. So she doesn't have all that baggage. So she does need these things explained to her. So, you know, when fans get in an uproar about this kind of stuff, uh, we have to remember that after fifty years. Part of the generation that grew up with Bond's not here anymore. They're they're they've gone on to another place, <laughs> and mm. so we're we're having to get to the point like you know in Star Trek two thousand nine things like that. We're having to re-explain who people are. Superman seventy five years. We're having to actually explain who this character is. Yeah, you understand him. He's in the cultural ether, but that doesn't mean that you. No, and I, I, I like that they're taking the time to do that. And again, Blofeld's still around to use and continue to use as long as they want. And if he'll last more than one film, I'm not sure, especially depending on what Craig does. But we can't make up uh, Craig's mind. All we can do is say, uh, Daniel Craig, if you're listening to this, um, we really want you to come back for at least one more. So. Just one more. You made an interesting point, Norm, and we also talked about this with Skyfall, but the idea that that once again, MI6 and the double O program is kind of under siege from the government. And Casino Royale made this point, and Skyfall made this point, and this movie is making the point of the way that we scrutinize things in today's day and age is very interesting and very different um, than before when we didn't know it all, when there wasn't 24 hours, 365 days a year, uh, 24-7 news going on. And we just, we didn't know as much stuff. You know, you picked up the daily paper and what was ever in that, that's what you got as news. You know, that's just not the world we live in. So everything is reported out. Everything is taken a picture of. Everything's a Snapchat, you know. <laughs> um, and this is an interesting thing because this movie takes the idea of intelligence and surveillance and one-ups it. I mean, like, Snowden level. So... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, what did you guys think about that? Because again, this movie kind of has this interesting, like, political refrain in it, but it's not. It. I don't know. Again, I I think John, it might be what we talked about before. It. I don't know if it's one side or the other. It's just kind of putting it there and letting you try and think about it. I mean, for the story, it's kind of going back to the well again, because we have seen this idea as a thread, and not just in these Craig movies, but, you know, again, we we talked about how just calling James Bond a dinosaur in GoldenEye, um, or allowing Bond to go rogue in License to Kill, you know, you can only take the character so far before then you you have to sort of realize that 
other people that occupy that fictional character's world, <laughs> they also occupy that world and have to answer to, well, government, uh, uh, you know, intelligence and, and you, you have to, you have to give a reason for them to actually be reacting to and interacting with this guy. And maybe they stretched out this concept a little too far, um, just by, by, hitting it before, hitting it before, hitting it before. But I like the idea that they sort of gave it the denouement. They gave it the the ultimate end game in uh, Spectre to say, well, it's not just British intelligence. Now it's world intelligence that has a new face, that has a new uh, operating method. And um, not only will we try to justify it, but we will try to explain while we're doing that what's wrong with this this other way, the old outdated double O section. It's a very good idea, and it's a good debate to actually have in a movie. You know, uh, uh, Matthew, as you mentioned, you and I, we didn't come up with any answers last time to say that this is all good or this is all bad. We were just able to make the case to say the world is different. <laughs> we gather intelligence in different ways. What do we do with it? And can we make a case for spies, spies on the ground, people like James Bond going out and gathering intelligence and and dispatching a bad guy or two? If we can even say that there are just singular bad guys we can sort of point the finger at and uh and uh hope that getting rid of them will actually do some good so you know overall i thought it was a valuable conversation to spark in these movies um but a little piece of me sat there and thought didn't we already talk about this <laughs> you know yeah i mean by and large it was an extension of what we were talking about in skyfall and and before i get too far into this i i really have to give credit to Andrew Scott, who played C. And a lot of you mm. may notice him, if you've seen the movie already, you may have noticed him as Moriarty. Yeah, M BBC's stands for Moriarty. That's what it really stands for. I mean, yeah, M's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that the, um, I thought the extension of the Nine Eyes program as this kind of this global security blanket was very much in the spirit and the vein of what Spectre would do. It would be their ability to control security on a global level. They can control finance and they can control different parts of world governments. And with what happened in, I believe it was South Africa, they were able to stage a coup there or some type of global nationwide emergency or national emergency where they would, the, the stalwart South Africans who voted against the program now had to fall in line. So now you saw Spectre's overreaching authority into global affairs. I mean, Spectre, for all intents and purposes, really is the modern version of the Illuminati, this shadowy organization mm -hmm. that controls the other shadowy organizations like Quantum and the Boy Scouts. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 I'm Don't just forget kidding. the Girl Scouts, I know, those I know scary cookies. <laughs> I know there are right. Scouts out there. I'm an Eagle Scout myself. I'm just <laughs> so. But, you know, what I'm getting at is that Spectre, by and large, back to the original films, is supposed to be this intangible smoke, this this organization that you can't wrap your hands around. And once you do, they're gone. They've disappeared. And you've only really thwarted only a section of the organization because it's so well insulated and so well layered and tiered. You will never get to Blofeld unless Blofeld allows it to happen. And that is another part of an overreaching scheme. So 
at the end of this movie, I'll go back to this. It's not that he was captured. It's that he allowed himself to put himself into position to checkmate Bond again. Mm-hmm. That's when I, I mean, I never saw that at the end of this movie. Like, oh my gosh, Blofeld, what happened? You're not nearly as awesome as you used to be. You know, it's like until he, f- and, and there would be a way, you know, after the end of, I believe it was Fiora's Only, where Bond dropped him from his wheelchair into a smokestack. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Blofeld wanted that to happen. That's how I always see Blofeld. He was always like five steps ahead of what Bond has even thought about doing after breakfast. Right. So that's, <laughs> right. but that's, um, you know, with going back to the CNS and the extension of the security system, again, it just falls in the nature of what Spectre would do and try and influence the world governments in that same way to squeeze them, especially through information. I mean, that's, that's what Blofeld said. Like information is the greatest weapon on earth. Well, and it, it's such an interesting thing, and it just leaves you to think, you know, with all of this information out there, everything in the digital age is accessible if you're a good enough hack, you know? Like, you can get in anywhere. You just have to be good enough and have the right technology, and that's what's so scary, and that's what makes these kind of villains, you know, as big brother as it gets, you know, <laughs> When Blofeld is really just B stands for Big Brother, um, you know that that's that's who he is at this point. He's he's everywhere, as as Mister White said. He's he's sitting at dinner with you and your kids. He's hanging out with your lover. He's everywhere, and um, yeah, I I really you know what I loved about this film is that it took all of those little bits and pieces uh, of the, that kind of political or talk that they've had and just kind of put it to use, you know, and then just one-upped itself. Um, and it took all those puzzle pieces and put them together into this really scary, awful puzzle piece, you know? Um, you know, if you thought Silva was bad with what he could do with his technology, you know, Blofeld Inspector is like that times a million, one million computers. So you know, we got to talk about this, and I, I want to hear all of your thoughts about just how cinematically cool the meeting was at Saint, P- the, the, basically in the basement or the catacombs of Saint Peter's Basilica, because that there, that just the flavor of that, and just how how traditional Bond that was, but how modern it was at the same time. Yeah. It, it really felt, and I was waiting for somebody to push a button and see like someone fly backwards in a chair. It's like, oh, wait, I'm not, I'm not quite dead. I'm just severely burned. burned. I'm, I'm very badly burned. <laughs> I mean, yeah, when I saw that scene, I started chuckling a little bit out loud because yep. we all know the kind of like how it has become, you know, but right. when you really take a look at it, you're like, wow, okay. I can see Emilio Largo sitting there. You know, I can see Goldfinger sitting there. It's just... The, your so... your your guy from Casino Royale, the the um, Asian gentleman with the white hair. There. Yeah, he was there. there. Movie, if yes. you look, there's a there's a there's a long white haired Asian gentleman always in the background somewhere. Who's in? He's he literally is, he's um he's the Japanese Felix Slater. We just don't know. <laughs> like the I love that. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, he's the ninja. Um, that's good. Exactly. Felix Slater. Yeah. yeah. But that scene, it's so well done, and there's so much weight there. And you're just like, wow, Bond, you got some 
nerve some set of brass bulldogs on you you know to walk in there and just say like it's i mean that's what i mean he's so cocky he just walks in straight forward that's straight literally forward. the lion's den mm-hmm. i mean yeah. it doesn't get any more coliseum than that which is great because they're in rome and True. so yeah. the nice yeah. alliteration that he's walking into the lion's den is really there and uh, that scene the way it's shot Everything is just so perfect. The way that, you know, Blofeld doesn't talk for a while. He just leans over and the guy pulls his little microphone up to him. Love it. So ridiculous, but so perfect. And yeah. that, that woman that? who's talking, uh, can't you just imagine her as Clep? Yeah. Right. You know? Right. Yep. Right. Oh, God. Now, I mean, here's the thing. They, they start that scene and I knew that someone was going to die. And I was waiting for a button to get pushed. I was waiting for a trap door. I was waiting for a gun under the table. I was waiting for something. But then, but then they change it up and they just introduce a new mute bad guy who comes in and decides to break some heads. And that is exactly what he does. He, he breaks a head. Um, so we knew that had to happen, but my God, is that scene tense and wonderful and the perfect introduction to Christoph Waltz. I'm going to tie in a couple of franchises here with a with my my last big pun of the evening. But mm-hmm. I'm going to title this particular bad guy as Hugo Drax the Destroyer. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Well I done. think yeah, well I done. think what's great about that scene, that whole thing, I mean it leads into and we need to mention it, it leads into that amazing car chase scene that's actually got some great funny moments as Bond is beyond the Fiat and really not happy about being behind the Fiat. Uh, it leads to one of the saddest moments in the film as mm. the DB-10 slides into the Tiber. Uh, that that was against human nature right there. That that is, that is a crime against humanity. And I'm not sure I can <laughs> forgive the filmmakers for putting that car through that because uh, there's only like 10 of them in the world and they ruined one of them. I read somewhere right, along right. the line that they they blew up thirty four million dollars worth of car. Oh my! Doing the stunts. Uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That whole thing is just fantastic. And so you mentioned John, and I think it's a perfect time to segue into mm-hmm. talking about the new characters. Um, you know, Dave Bautista's character is actually never named in the film, but he's yeah. known as Mister Hinks. Right. But how did we feel about him? being kind of an amalgamation of all of the famous Bond henchmen. I, he's kind of perfect. You know, again, like hats off to the casting director because here you've got to, to fill the shoes of the ultimate Bond villain and they found the ultimate actor to do that. But then you've got to have, you've got to have a big guy to play this terrifying henchman who, who honors the tradition of Jaws and Odd Job and Teehee and everybody else that has come before? Um, absolutely, it's Dave Bautista. <laughs> you know that, that's it, it's so completely perfect, and and you believe him. You you absolutely believe that he is that dangerous. Um, I, I think the standout for me is uh, the train fight for sure. Um, he's just yes. tremendous. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just tremendous. A very elegant, um, very unpopulated train. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, you saw where that train goes. How many people yeah, do you think yeah. actually ride that train? Uh, four, apparently. Yeah. 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 <laughs> four. Well, what was yeah. great about him is the fact that 
you know, this Bond has been the one that it can go toe-to-toe with anybody. So mm-hmm. you needed somebody who was bulkier, bigger, just like looked so much more badass than this Bond that you knew this Bond didn't have a chance of necessarily beating the crap out of. Yeah. Well, I mean, it goes back to all these different traditional flavors that are being bought back because you had, again, you had the Thunderball kind of scene at the beginning with Mexico City uh, that was very much like the the uh, Mardi Gras scene in Thunderball. Then you have this. And in From Rush With Love and in Live and Let Die, you had these great train fight sequences. And From Rush With Love, you had it with Red Grant. And I felt that I felt that Bautista's character was very much aligned with that because Red Grant was just this unstoppable assassin force. You know, he wasn't just a killer. He was like unstoppable and he was really good at what he did. And the train sequence, it's very romantic in a way and adds for a lot of comedy bits because, you know, I mean, you're fighting literally within what, 25, 30 feet of car width wise, Mm -hmm. you know, there's Mm -hmm. not a lot of room there. So you're basically going straight at each other. Right. And we saw Mr. Hinks get dispatched, but in true Bond fashion, he very well may come back with hopefully a set of metal teeth because that would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the great thing is he gets thrown off that train, but you just know he could survive that. I mean, if he can survive getting thrown out the window of a car in a crash like that, he can survive that. I mean, come on. He's never really killed he's just beaten back a little bit yeah i mean Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. you you only live twice uh so he's got at least one more time left so so it seems (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean that scene on the train was just great too i mean they're just busting through the the train itself like through the bathroom and through everything else i mean that they wreck that train great so what do we do now it's it's awesome (laughs) it is awesome so Luckily, like you said, there were very few people on that train, uh, except for the waiter and uh, the porter uh, and probably the the train engineer that mm-hmm. probably, you know, maybe the cook. There's probably a cook somewhere. So, Well, we, we have to assume that for a train that elegant to run with that few passengers, they're, they're just charging a tremendous amount per ticket. So they've they've got a cash flow to do some repair work. That that was yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. ride the train to nowhere. It's mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a fabulous trip. So actually, and I have to say that the, the desolate as the landscape was in that, the the cinematography in this movie is fantastic, and that yeah. everything about that scene was just beautiful. I mean, it made it look like that trip was romantic and. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. everything, you know, Bond and, and Madeline, you could understand why they would uh, begin to feel the way they do in that trip. So, Well, the one thing I always felt that was really successful about a James Bond movie for me is that, you know, I can't fit the bill to travel to all these different countries. So when a Bond movie does what a Bond movie does right is when you actually feel transported to all these different locales. So you're in Mexico City and then you're in London and then you're in Tangiers and then you're in the Swiss Alps. You know, and then you're headed towards where the desert was. That wasn't Tunisia, was it? I can't remember. They no, don't say uh, where that is, yeah. but my, I mean, it. My guess is is that the train is into the middle of maybe like the Sahara or somewhere that's just utterly desolate, right? Like that, you know. So it could have, have been all somewhere these really like the, great textures and flavors yeah. and. Could have been Fantastic. like the Middle East or 
something like that at that point too, um, where there's just nothing. Oh, and Rome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Rome mm-hmm. too. Yeah, yeah. So. which looked great, uh, man. Yeah. Um. Well, bringing up Rome brings up Monica Bellucci. Well, hello. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> goodness, I I think that was one of the things that I loved about this film. Obviously, first we're casting a Bond girl that's as old as Bond. Uh, so a, a definitely a Bond woman, and she is. I mean, it's Monica Bellucci. Everything she does <laughs> is exquisite, and she is not in the film for long. But she sets an interesting precedent in this film. In that, as far as we know, she becomes the first woman that Bond has been intimate with, and and we do mean intimate, uh, biblically. Mm-hmm. She lives, and then it happens again in this yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, twice. So there has been a precedent set now that just because you know it, it's not the scream, you know, don't have sex unless you want to die thing. <laughs> right, uh, right. In a horror movie, in a Bond movie, we finally have a Bond girl that, as far as we know. She got in touch with Felix, and she lived. So I think that's one. That was really cool. But what did you guys think about her and and just the amount of screen time she had? One, because it's Monica Bellucci. Uh, mm-hmm. And two, how did you think that she did uh, in the role? Well, I, I mean, it's kind of perfect. You know, it, it, again, just it, it goes back to the casting. And I like... I like the idea that they have broken the mold a little bit because, again, if there's one thing about the Bond films that you can look at and go, okay, this this aspect is stale. It needs some reinvention. It needs some explanation. We have a reason for this character to be here, a reason for her to be integral to the plot. Um, but if somebody goes in and says, yeah, you know what? Every time there's a Bond girl, they're either a helpless damsel or they get killed or whatever the case may be. And I like the idea that we've totally shaken that up in this movie. We still have a movie populated by beautiful women. We still have a movie populated by beautiful women in elegant locations, wearing fabulous clothes and being intimate with Bond. But we get to change it enough so we're not just relying on the old cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, you know, I really can't think of anybody else other than Monica Bellucci that I would have liked to have seen in a role like that. She's so cool and elegant, and and you see that she's tortured, you know, by behind the eyes. That this character is. Um, by everything that's been going on and 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 she's desperate in a way that isn't that isn't pathetic she's desperate in a way that says i'm in over my head because you know the the situation that i happen to be in with this this man mm-hmm. um yeah it's just wonderful she's so great i i wanted her to be on more i wanted there to be maybe a little bit of tie back to to what she was doing but I, i'm so glad of what we got of her you know, with Severine in in Skyfall, she was a really interesting character because how much information she imparted with her fear and how that pretty much described the strength of Silva. And the reason why I bring up her, her character is because Monica Bellucci has just about as much screen time, if just a little bit less, but also imparts the same amount of information because 
of the organization that she's so deeply rooted in and has no way out. And she also does it from a point of, like you said, John, it's not desperation. Mm -hmm. She's very, I think she's very calculating. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes a person of Monica Bellucci's age as an actress to allow you to believe that a woman like this has been forged and kind of fortified in a way from at least the psychological abuse of being involved in somewhat involved in the specter organization, or at least the relationship she had with her husband, the, uh, you know, Skiara, the assassin. So it's almost kind of like, um, when you see mobster wives trying to get out, you know, they they, they can only, they, they only have so many choices and it literally takes somebody at the level that bond can offer her to get her out of this organization, the, the, the connection that he has and the, 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 the railroad that he can get her to the CIA, to Felix Leiter, which is awesome, by the way, because they don't bring in Felix Leiter as a reference enough, in my mm-hmm. opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with so, that. Um, yeah. So I think it really was smart for casting someone as, as they cast, like in age-wise as Monica Bellucci, because I don't think that you would have believed somebody who was just beautiful, I think you needed someone who was beautiful and at the same time had the ability to portray that kind of that strength of her of her conviction but also this trappedness, you know, in her desperation. But not desperation and I need to be saved. Desperation like I have no other option but to do what you say 007. Mm-hmm. I don't like you and I don't like what you stand for, but if you're my only way out of here, Okay, I'll take that yeah. chance. What I loved is that by casting Monica Bellucci, you have immediate gravitas. And what you were saying, Norm, is that you have everything that's going on behind the eyes. You you can tell that she has this fear. She feels trapped. She's lived a life that is, as she said, you know, she was respected and all those things, but at the you, you get the feeling like she hasn't, she's been neglected. She's been, um, uh, you don't know if she's been abused in, verbally or anything like that, but you just feel the pain of this woman who's lived a life she got herself into and she can't get out of a lot like Severine. Mm-hmm. This time, Bond gets to save her. He gets to get her on that, that you know, Felix train out of there. And... Mm-hmm. um and that's what I liked. As far as we know, she she's alive. And Bond was able to to do good in her life. And at the same time, what I also like is that this man that's shown her some bit of kindness, she is then worried for and warning him about going to this place where there is no mercy. Um, and I liked that. You know, it wasn't the, um, the idle schoolgirl, ridiculous, over-the-top, you know... Um, living daylights kind of relationship where she's just way too young for bond in the first place or mm-hmm. view to a kill kind of thing or you know any of those places where we just really felt like the woman was too young for bond uh, they're equals here in some ways you know and and, and so i just i really like that and, and again she doesn't have tons of screen time but i think it's very effective and the casting is spot on to get in monica bellucci 
to sell everything that needs to happen in that role in a very short time period. Uh, a lesser actress just would not have been able to do it. And um, God, uh, you, you sent me this great video, Norm, of this ultimate Bond fan who's eight years old and mm -hmm. he was on the Ellen show and um, they sent him to the uh, premiere in Mexico City and he interviewed all the, the people coming down the line. And Monica Bellucci gave that eight-year-old boy a kiss. That is going to be that boy's wow. memory yeah. forever. I mean, not the fact that he's also wearing a $6,200 watch that um, Craig gave him. Uh, so I don't know why you give an eight-year-old an Omega, but uh, wow, that kid is the luckiest person on the planet. So uh, We do have another character, though to talk about and I wanted to give her her own section because I think she deserves it because this is Bond in love there are very few times that Bond falls in love in the films uh, and this is only the second time that Bond actually rides off into the sunset and the first time that we end the movie and she's still alive mm -hmm. so I uh, wanted to talk to you guys about Madeline Swan, Leia Sadu, who I'm going to be honest, she's amazing. I do not have enough words for how good I think she is in this film and how beautiful I think she is and how real she feels as a person. You know, Bond girls are always beautiful, but in some ways they always feel modelish and inaccessible. But she, there's something about her that just feels very real. So I wanted to ask you guys about this whole thing. One, Bond falling in love. Two, him giving it up for her. And three, just her as a character and how she worked for you in the movie. I, I had a real fear when they first introduced that character that um, she was going to be the, the opposite of what you had just described, Matthew, that that she would be too young for Bond, that she would be a little wet behind the ears, that, that, it, that we were going to fall back into all these cliches that I thought we had just broken by having uh, the Monica Belushi character there. But I was so relieved that they constructed somebody who had a lot of depth and and whose story resonated throughout what was happening with Bond's story and his confrontation with Blofeld. Um, she's gorgeous. There's no question about it. Um, I was actually surprised when I uh, looked at her IMDb that uh, Leia Sedu is about 30 years old because I think she plays younger than that on screen sometimes. Other times, I think she kind of looks older than her age. Um, but uh, which I'm certainly not saying is a bad thing at all. I'm just saying that when we first saw her, I thought, are we getting back into that territory where it's Roger Moore with. Um, Oh gosh, what what was her name in um, A View to a Kill? It's Terrible okay King? that you forgot because yes, yeah, we all I forgot. just I, I try to wipe that right out of my memory, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I, I thought there was a real risk there that we we're going to end up with a uh, a relationship that just felt like another Bond oh, dance blonde in girl. Yeah, yeah, there you oh, go. Oh, Christatos's niece. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but uh, but they didn't. She's fantastic. She's really wonderful in that. She's a nuanced character, and you, you understand her history, and you understand then why she and Bond are in this together, and why they kind of get each other. So uh, terrific, terrific work there. 
I liked her all the way back when I think I saw her the first time was in Robin Hood. She was oh, cool. uh, Prince John's wife, a French princess. Um, Prince John played by Oscar Isaacs at the time, uh, who I would love to see in a James Bond film, but I digress. Hmm. Uh, so she was really strong there in a certain way. She was also really strong in Mission Impossible 4 as, um, as the lead assassin. I can't remember her name, but she was really interesting to watch there because she has a sort, certain kind of uh, deviousness behind her eyes, which she brought to this film. Because half of the time I understood where she was coming from as a character, but half the time I was waiting for her training from Mr. White, who was her father, to kick in. And I thought she was going to betray 007 at some point. Mm-hmm. Because I just didn't really, because of how good Lea Sedu plays um, devious and kind of uh, untrustworthy in a way, I, I was like, where's the other shoe going to drop? But the other thing that she, the other character that she reminded me of a lot was Marion Ravenwood to say Daniel Craig would be Indiana Jones because she just had this type of independence and feistiness to her. Probably because she was raised by this kind of a guy, Mr. Mm-hmm. White. That's perfect. Right. Yeah. You know, so she was taught how to fire a gun, but, but she didn't lead on to it in the train sequence. Um, <laughs> she knew how to take care of herself in a fight. She knew how to assess the situation that she was in. And maybe one or two lines maybe rang false for me a little bit. Um, there was a line when they were on the uh, they were in the uh, Rolls Royce headed towards the um, compound in the desert. She grabs James' hand. She says, "I'm frightened." I'm like, "No, I don't believe that for a second that you are." <laughs> you know, be- I-, I felt that she was feeding him a line, and so there was this kind of uh, this this imbalance there a little bit for me. Um, but that's just because I was suspecting her to reveal herself and step away from Bond at the right moment and say, and you know, go into Blofeld's arms. And then finally, you know, Blofeld would have the ultimate, you know, victory over James Bond. You know, I have duped you both in tactics and in emotional uh, content. So, but also she reminded me a lot of um, Alicia Vikander's Gabby from Man From Uncle. Yep. Where she just had this real tomboyish, um, just strength to her and uh, this just fierceness to her. So I thought she did a great job. And to be able to hold her own in that kind of caliber with... With Daniel Craig, I think she did an absolutely fantastic job. And we will see if her story continues in the next film. For me, this is the thing that I loved about this film. And the whole film for me feels like On Her Majesty's Secret Service in so many ways. And the fact that, you know, uh, we all kind of geeked out when we saw the trailer. Uh, We were talking back and forth on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that, (laughs) messaging each other about the little bit of hint, the little hint of the On Her Majesty's Secret Service music in the trailer, and that maybe that they would go that way. And they did. And I think it's fantastic. Um, Because like Tracy kind of getting that opportunity to buffet Bond and to, you know, there's just something about a Bond woman that actually challenges Bond the way that Tracy did, I think, that she's able to do. There's the wonderful scene that they have in the bedroom when they're in Tangier 
and she's been drinking and she's talking about her father and she kind of stumbles and she says, don't think this is when I fall into your arms for solace about my dead daddy. Mm -hmm. And she gets into the bed alone and she's like, don't come in here. I'll kill you. And he's like, oh, I believe it. And they don't. And he respects that. He stays in the chair. He doesn't make the move. And I think that he earns her trust in that scene. Um, and then there's the wonderful scene on the train when they're having a drink before Mr. Hinks comes in and kicks the whole thing to hell. It's a wonderful scene because she asks him, oh, you know, what makes a man be an assassin? What makes him choose that life? And he makes the joke about it was either that or the priesthood, which is very funny. <laughs> but at the same time, then she asks him, what makes you stay in that? And they have the whole conversation about him not stopping long enough to think about it. He's never really thought it. He's never had time to think about it. And the understanding that they have, she understands what leads men into this kind of life with her father, and she understands what it does to them, and she has a real care for who he is as a person. And all of that, I think, Leia Sadu does perfectly. There's there's never a false moment there. I think you're right, Norm. And the only time that I'm like, eh, is maybe when she says I'm scared, but I, I let that go. The rest of it... She is definitely a Bond girl of a different mold, and there's only been one. Yeah. And and that's Tracy. I found that in in in, in such a way though, where we we talked about how Bond saved Lucia in a way where he couldn't save Severine. I think that Madeline, in some way, although she very much resembles Tracy uh, spiritually, I think Madeline, in some way, is how he's he's saving her the way that he couldn't save Vesper. I see a lot of bookending in this movie, you know, where, yes, they're tying up a lot of loose ends, but there's these opportunities for him to make good on what he's learned. And, and he did, I think, in my opinion, I think he actually did love Vesper. He was about to quit the agency... In that movie, I mean, he was on the boat. He was, I mean, they were ready to go. She had the money. He's like, I'll follow you up. I'll, I'll be right behind you. I quit. I turned in my papers and he was ready to sign that, send that email resignation to M until he figured out what was going on. And in the end of this movie, I think he really does want to get out and, and be happy. And he, he learned from his mistakes with Vesper. I mean, there's a great scene in Tangiers where he saw the interrogation room that Mr. White had hidden behind a false wall. He saw that there was an interrogation tape of Vesper, and he's like, you know what? I've learned from that experience. There's nothing that this tape is going to teach me about how I felt about her or what I didn't realize she was. And between that and the end of Quantum, when he finally gave the, you know, the, the, the love knot... Uh, mm. present back you know it's like that's it my my emotional connection with Vesper is done I'm not going to make that same mistake again if I do I'm a fool and I'm no one's fool so let's move forward emotionally with Madeline Swan because she does represent everything that I want in a woman strength talent um, independence and the ability to take care of herself and that's what Vesper was 
with the uh, with the added uh, exception of being uh, a counter spy for now Spectre. So I think that makes really great character progression for him for both being able to save Lucia and save Madeline. Isn't it just the best that they're back in the Alps on a mountaintop retreat? You know, uh, a clinic. Ah, oh, just love the On Her Majesty's oh. Secret Sir, which is, as everybody knows, it's my favorite Bond movie. So the fact that they're <laughs> actually doing that in this, I just, I was so mad that there wasn't a hint or a cue at all of any of the On Her Majesty's Secret Service music when Bond first arrives or in the chase sequence afterwards. I just, I wanted there to be it so badly because it, it was gorgeous it was amazing to be back in the alps in a bond film as soon as we saw that building i just i, I leaned over to my friend and said piz gloria mm-hmm. yeah it, mm-hmm. it just absolutely was yeah and technically there was a queue in the alps i'm just saying there was <laughs> yeah really there was yeah Q was in the alps Q, yeah which was great i loved that he was there um when he opens the door and he's like Madeline Q, Q Madeline, and mm-hmm. Q's like enchanted. He's so polite. And then he's like, uh, we need to talk. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> so good. But I just wanted to bring up Q's involvement because it brings up the, I think the one thing that, at least when I have been reading it on the internet, the one sticking point that um, that maybe the three of us can kind of hash out, and that is the DNA coding on the ring. Mm. that Q analyzes that has the Spectre logo on it. And what did you guys think of that as a plot device and as something that helps retcon a couple of things from the first three movies? Well, you know, it, it kind of goes back to what I said before. I mean, I it, they tied things together. I sort of immediately pushed that out of my mind because it wasn't as important to me as what else was going on with Blofeld, with Spectre, with Bond. So the fact that they did that was kind of a nice tip of the hat. Now, the actual technology involved, did I buy it? No. You know, him just sitting there with a computer and, oh, and I put this down and then boom, I have an instant DNA analysis of everybody who has ever touched this thing. Um, No, I, I thought that was kind of weak, but maybe if they had chosen another way to explain that, it would have eaten up too much story time. Mm. So it, it was a, a technological moment that I wasn't crazy about. But again, if I just kind of let that part of the movie slip by and just sort of think to myself, like, okay, they're making the case that these are connected, that Spectre is connected into more horrible things than you have ever even imagined. <laughs> That's really the point. The details are less important to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's just the one ring to rule them all. Right. And, <laughs> right, uh, right. you know, I, I yeah, it, I'm like, John, you know, uh, the fact that Q can do what he does, I just accept that he's Q, and he can mm-hmm. do things that are impossible. And so it made sense that he could pull the DNA off of anybody who's worn that ring or has been given that ring. And, you know, I mean, in the end, uh, they weren't expecting that the ring's going to get pulled off and probably put through the rigors that Q would put it through. So 
I, I, I thought just, you said ringer. That would have been yeah, amazing. Yeah, the ringer. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I just, I do. I let that go, you know. Uh, those are the kind of plot point things that I'm not going to get hung up on because it's it's movie stuff. I'm, I'm used yeah. to watching movies mm-hmm. in the way mm-hmm. that they do things and they, they, they can't spend 30 minutes with Q trying to figure out what to get off of this ring and they just they make it easy on themselves so i think in the in the audience i think it, it's you can't be hypocritical and say like i believe everything that cisco ramon and felicity and oh, yeah. do to help their superheroes and not <laughs> yes. believe this yes yes right, right. right. I mean, let's make that a very clear and fair point you yeah. have to be able to accept one and the other you can't say that no q who has the entire british intelligence funding right behind his laptop not have this kind of a software to do even something remotely close to this? No, I think that's unfair if you say that. Yeah. Well, and I do have to say what's great is that, you know, so many people and, and my my friends that are programmers just hated the scene in Skyfall when they're doing the thing with the programming and the way that it looks. And they're like, that wouldn't look like that at all. It would just look like millions of lines of code. And what I did like is that when Q is hacking into C's network... Mm-hmm. It is just all of this lines of code that he's going yeah. through it it's a million miles a minute, which looked very realistic in this and compared to what they did in Skyfall, where it was this you know wonderful thing for the audience, but as a programmer's just face palming a million times. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I that was really nice. So well, I wanted to ask you guys about uh, the theme and the music and how that works for you. Obviously, we have talked a tiny bit about the the theme song by Sam Smith, um, and you know, every Bond movie, uh, I think sometimes a theme song can work, even though it might not work kind of in real life uh, outside the film. So I'm kind of wondering if it if it worked a little bit better for you there. And then uh, we have another uh, score here by Thomas Newman, who was, I mean, just. Academy Award nominee with Skyfall. So does this kind of live up for you guys there as well? Uh, nope. Uh, moving on. No. <laughs> 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 um, no, I, I, the theme song is really weak. It, it's really weak. And it, I think just today I was looking at uh, RollingStone.com's ranking of the top Bond songs, and, and they had this one ranked a little higher than I thought it deserved. And some of the others ranked lower than I thought they deserved. Um, it's completely forgettable. I mean, now Sam Smith has got a difficult task that he's got to follow Adele, and nobody wants that job. Um, I would not have minded if they had brought back Adele. There's certainly yeah. precedent for it where you've got Shirley Bassey doing three themes. Um, yeah, it was just really weak. Now, to counter that, Thomas Newman's score I thought was very good. I don't think it's the best of the Bond scores, but it's very good. And he very cleverly, like he did in Skyfall, was able to reference other Bond themes, again, without hitting you over the head. You have to have the Bond theme in there, clearly, and you want to hear that throughout the movie, but you don't want to hear it all the time, and you don't want to hear direct rips from other soundtracks. What he does is clever and understated enough. So um, I, I think it works very well. But man, that theme song, I couldn't even tell you what was in it if I had to hum it right now. Now, I remember when they first announced Sam Smith as singing, uh, as, as going to have the uh, the opportunity to sing the 24th, are we in mm-hmm. uh, theme 24, song? 24, yeah. And... 
I can't say that I'm the most familiar with his work. I mean, I know obviously the Grammy award winning work that he has done mm-hmm. and some of the, you know, some of his signature songs, but that's about as much as I know of the artist. Uh, I knew way more about Adele than I did about Sam Smith going into Skyfall. Uh, so that being said, I think I said this to you, Matthew, before when we first heard it, we were like furiously texting each other. It's like, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? <laughs> And I said, I think that this song is going to work better in context of the credit sequence rather than a standalone song. Mm. Now, much like anything else, it should be able to stand on both aspects of the merit. But I don't think that I could listen to this song in radio play. I think I would actually fast forward through it or switch stations or whatever. However, you know, you you uh, uh, consume your your media nowadays with radio. But for the credit sequence, I was paying attention to how the, the, just the sense, the general sense of malaise that it was for the credit sequence. And I think it, it worked for me. But there were some times where I'm like, mm, could be a little more well-rounded, a little bit more uh, depth you know, to it. But overall, um, I think it actually did in in terms of the Craig movies, it did better for me as a credit sequence song than, say, Jack White's and Alicia Keys' song did for mm-hmm. Quantum of Solace. Mm-hmm. I felt completely disconnected from that very moment to the movie as soon as I heard that song. Actually, I, the funny thing is, is I actually think that song is good in radio play. I just don't think it's good as a Bond credit song or a credit sequence song. So, but also, I was paying way more attention to the graphics in the credit sequence than I was to the song. So in terms of it holding my attention, you're right. I don't think it really was there. Um, I would have to watch the movie again and then listen to the song again and see if it pairs up a little bit more. What I do like, though, and I think has become a little bit more of a trend with the Craig film credits, is that you're seeing a lot of foreshadowing in the credits. You're seeing a lot yes. of hints and kind of um, little... Either direction or misdirection. It really depends on how you take it of where the plot points are going. Um, I did think that the octopus reference was a little heavy after, <laughs> say, the first eight tentacles. But you kind of like get whatever was going. And, and it started getting um, a little bit more traditional James Bond there. But I thought it was successful, but I was really... It was, I was still kind of reeling from how awesome like the first opening scene was. I mean, the credits for me were... they would, I would say they were forgettable, but they weren't nearly as impactful as Chris Cornell's credits were for Casino Royale, just because mm-hmm. I love the animated mm-hmm. style, that, that modern-slash-1960s-70s flavor to it, and then just the amazing credit sequence in Skyfall. I mean, so far, for the Craig films, it has yet to be beat. I think that this song does work a tad bit better uh, as a credit sequence, which is great. Uh, I think this song actually works much better as an instrumental. Uh, there is the instrument, there is the instrumental version that plays while the uh, they're on the train, and it's beautiful. It's a fantastic piece of music. As long as Sam Smith is not falsettoing the crap out of it, um, and I, I wish that I don't understand why you wouldn't have chosen somebody like Adele to come back, which would have been fantastic. Or goodness, um, 
why hasn't Michael Bublé been asked to perform a Bond right? song? Mm. Um, <laughs> have you, if you've heard his Cry right. Me a River version of that song, it sounds like a Bond song. It has this wonderful... It it sounds it yeah. sounds like the beginning of a Bond film, and yep. what I don't understand is is why they haven't asked him to do it. Maybe they will with the next one. Who knows? But the song itself, it it the instrumental version works so well for the love scene that you do have between Madeline and Bond, and they I love that they use it there. I, this works well enough for the film. It's fine. It's just not a standout, unfortunately. Um. I would I would say that I am a little disappointed that Thomas Newman just stole from himself and used too many cues from Skyfall in this film, especially in the action sequences. He literally just lifted points of his score and put them into uh, this new movie, and I was disappointed with that. I think he's better than that. I think there needed to be some more allusions to... Um, other Bond films, especially on Her Majesty's Secret Service, even more than they were given. Um, and I have to say I'm very disappointed that the score that you can buy doesn't sound as good as the score in the film because there's cues missing, and I hate when they do that to me. And I'm sure it's just because in 10 years or 5 years or maybe next month they're going to want to sell me the you know, special edition. It's like you know, twice the tracks. Uh, but um, <laughs> it, it to me, that was my only thing that just kind of stood out to me was the theme song and the fact that there were some cues that are pretty big in the film that they just use. And I, I, I was a little disappointed. I think probably Newman was a little busy. Uh, he also scored Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg's latest film, Bridge of Spies, that came out uh, a few weeks before this. So he was a busy man. And I guess that may have been why they used, or he used, some of his original work from Skyfall. But it's still good. It's it's Thomas Newman. It's just not as good as Skyfall was the the soundtrack. And obviously, the theme is nowhere near the brilliance of Adele, and coming anywhere close to being my favorite Bond song. In fact, it's it's so far probably close to the bottom with with some of the worst. So. Um, but you know, it's, it's hard to be as good as, is like, um, you know, a, a Tina Turner and, and Goldeneye, just so iconic, um, you know, live and let die. I mean, Adele, I mean, we're the talking about the great song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, there's, it, it's hard to live up to that. So, uh, it's, it's not a travesty. It's just not my favorite, um. Can I make a small point here? Because yeah. you're bringing up all these great movies. You're bringing, I mean, we obviously have Spectre and we have Bridge of Spies out there. Uh, I just said uh, on Facebook the other day that it inspired me, watching Spectre inspired me to go back to Man from Uncle. We talked mm -hmm. about Leia Sadu mm -hmm. and Mission Impossible. Well, not Mission Impossible. There's five out. There was Enigma. I mean, this was this like the year of spy movies? Yeah, I, mean, I think, think so. Think about how densely packed it was with spy genre films. There are a lot. And I, I don't know if that hurt the box office a bit. I mean, I know that Spectre debuted to kind of the, the lower end of expectations and certainly Man From U.N.C.L.E. didn't perform nearly as well as I think the three of us would have hoped uh, that it mm -hmm. would have. Um, 
there's a bit of competition. You know, yeah. Mission Impossible may have stolen some of that thunder early on, um, and it's too bad. But, I mean, the good news is that, you know, half the world has seen a Bond film, and there is that name recognition. So even if the opening isn't super strong for Bond, um, this will find its legs in every other market in the world oh, yeah. over time. Yeah, <laughs> so we don't have to worry about that. Um, but, yeah, yeah, you know, I... If you're like us and you're a spy fan, great. Good time to be a moviegoer, you know? I I, I mean, honestly, and I don't think I'm giving anything away, but I mean, I've seen it twice and I really want to see it again in the big screen before, you know, it comes to uh, home viewing because, uh, you know, the, let's get into it. Yeah, mission and evaluation. Um, things you really liked, things you didn't, what are the things that really stood out to you that you're just like, ah, so good, great addition to the Bond franchise? Uh, And then was there anything that you were just like, eh? (laughs) Well, we kind of talked about this, um, again, you know, over and over with the, the first three Craig movies that my expectation was now that we've, relayed the groundwork for Bond and we've really explored who Bond is. Now it's time for Bond to have some fun and now it's time to go back to that classic Bond formula. And um, I I tried to stay away from anything remotely like a spoiler, uh, even though I kind of hoped that... um, uh, that Christoph Waltz would be playing Blofeld. So um, I sort of pushed that out of my mind so I could have that hint of excitement and realization when they actually revealed that in the movie. Um, my fear was that because you had this opportunity to return Bond to the classic formula, was that we'd end up in a situation where we did with Die Another Day, where here was the 20th Bond film where we had to make a big deal out of um no wait i'm sorry it wasn't the the 20th film but it was the the anniversary year film so um here's an anniversary film so we have to hit you over the head with every reference we can squeeze in just force it down your throat oh hey remember that scene from goldfinger well here's this and i was afraid that this movie would do that but these movies have gotten smarter and they've gotten more serious, but in a way that doesn't actually lose the some sense of fun that is there. Um, this managed to capture that, and it managed to squeeze in the references and the tropes and the ideas that we've seen in the 23 previous movies um, and still make them fun and fresh. I watched that scene on the train, and I, and I said, wow, this is like From Russia With Love, or it's like Live and Let Die isn't this fun? <laughs> Not, oh, look, they ripped off two other movies that I liked, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's a really tough thing to balance. It's a really tough thing to find, but I think they found the right balance there. Um, you know, I mentioned the music cues earlier, and 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 yes, uh, uh, Matthew, to your point, the, there is borrowing there, Thomas Newman borrowing from Thomas Newman. Um, but I was less interested in that and more interested in just the hints that made me think, oh, is that a little reference to OHMSS? Oh, is that a little reference to Goldfinger or, or something else? So those moments really worked for me. Now, as a movie, okay, could it have been 10 minutes or 15 minutes shorter? Maybe. Were there scenes that were filmed as beautifully as the uh, some of the Roger Deacons scenes that we got in Skyfall? 
eh, probably fell a little bit short of that. But I loved the sense of of place. I loved the uh, the characters. And I loved going back and forth from the deadly serious to moments where we got to let a little bit of the air out of the room. And a lot of that due to Christopher Waltz. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it really struck so many nice balances for me. And then I could forgive the things that were maybe a little hokey. We we talked about one of the big ones, which was Q's uh, magic DNA reading computer. <laughs> you know, if that's the worst that I can say about the movie, then so be it. It was the Spectre sorting hat is what that was. It was. Yeah, he has one. It's, it's so good. Yeah. You know, um, there are, I mentioned to this, to, to Matthew um, previously about the film, and I felt that this film had a really good way of bookending Quantum of Solace, and I felt that Skyfall had a really good way of booking Casino Royale, and then as a total, all four films just have a really good way of just completely intertwining with each other now. For me, that's where the, this movie really works on all levels. When I left the theater after watching this movie, the first thing that I could just really sum up the movie as being was fun. There were so many times after Casino Royale and Quantum and Skyfall where, and I did it too, where the audience and the social media pundits, they kept saying, when's Bond going to be Bond again? When are we going to get back to the fun? When are we going to get back to what it used to be like? Well, here it is. Mm-hmm. Here it is. I and think now they're all like, why is it so fun? Why is <laughs> why are we back to the original formula? So for me, there were equal parts of still origin story. You still had Bond growing as a character and the Scooby team growing as a unit and the origin story of Blofeld. And now you also have this new dynamic of Bond being a complete character, a happy character at the end, someone who actually rides into the sunset, you know, with the woman that he's falling in love with, we're still seeing a different kind of bond, but we're also getting all these great throwbacks to not just the original movies, but I think that one of the best scenes in this movie is when Mallory was confronting C very much the way that bond confronted the section chief in the very beginning of Casino Royale. I mean, almost it was almost beat for beat where it's like, I know where you keep your bullets. You know, C stands for <laughs> so careless. Exactly. And that, to me, felt like this movie was coming full circle in a way. And I really do want that fifth movie with Craig and Blofeld and, uh, and or Craig and Waltz and Lea Seydoux reprising their role roles and, and telling us that one last Daniel Craig story where he can leave on a really high note. But if they don't, I felt like this movie really does do a fantastic job of snipping all the little threads that were left behind from each of the of the three previous movies and tying up literally with tentacles a lot of the loose ends and making it just one fantastic four-part volume of the rebirth origin story of James Bond. I mean, I can go on and on and on with this, but when I left the movie it was exactly where I wanted to be as a fan. And it gave me, as a paying customer, exactly what I wanted to get out of a movie, what I used to get out of Bond movies, that sense of just, wow, it took me to exotic locales. It showed me all these great gadgets and the cars and the watches and the suits and the gorgeous women. 
And the only, my biggest problem with the movie, Matthew, though, is the sheer lack of McKellen branding in this movie. <laughs> There's there only was a one bottle. Bit. One bottle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I really love about Spectre, and they started it with Skyfall, and it's really come into fruition here. Bond doesn't have a family, obviously. But what I loved about this movie is that it made it a family affair and not with Blofeld, but with the fact that M and Moneypenny and Q and Tanner and Bond, they all make up this family and they're all in it together. You know, Bond has people to come home to with the mission is done that we're that are going to miss him. And I, I really loved that fact because It'll play into how the next movie, if Craig comes back, Leia Sadu and Christoph Waltz all come back, and, and you know, Leia Sadu's Madeline Swan does not make it, Bond does still have family. And it it's not the romantic family of, you know, a, a wife or a lover or a girlfriend or any of that, but he still does have family. And I really like that. I think that's really important for this Bond to ground him with that. And I really enjoy that. Uh, the opening sequence is fantastic, I thought, with the barrel rolls, with three barrel rolls from a, a you know, chopper. And just that whole thing is just gorgeous. Roger Deakins might not have been on this film, but I I still think this, this film looks beautiful. Uh, it's shot really well. And probably in the minority in this, but I liked the movie was long. Like On Her Majesty's Secret Service, I like that the movie has time to develop. Uh, that it has enough time to tell you these things that are happening and show you these things and you kind of buy that they're happening. Like giving them a love story and that kind of stuff. The more time you have with that, the more realistic it kind of feels. And so I like that. I love that Bond is being a spy and he's doing spy work. You know, like he's tracked this guy down to Mexico because he's had this, you know, uh, previous message from M once she died about, you know, going to kill this guy, but trying to go to the, then the funeral. And like, he's doing spy work. He's doing what it takes to try and figure this out the way that drones and all that junk can't, you know, the intelligence of a human agent on the ground to figure things out. And that's what makes Bond necessary. And that's what we talked about in Casino, about making him necessary. And this film continues to show that that's the case. And so I just really, really enjoyed Spectre. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've talked about it with people, the more I like it and the more I can't wait to just be able to have it at home and pop it on whenever I want because I, I really, really like this movie. God, I even love the way that Craig, you know, at the beginning of the film, he's just kind of sauntering down with that gun over the, the rooftops there. And as he makes his way to his mark, it's just, it's so Bond. So uh, everything for me, it's so much of this film works. There's a couple of things that, you know, don't that we talked about, but on a whole... It's a winner. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you guys, I thought, you know, instead of necessarily giving a, a star rating or re like that, how would you just rate the Craig Bonds for you? You know, one through four. 
So yeah, it, moving those around in order. Um, I, I, I think I still have to put Skyfall as my top. Uh, it, it just it really seems to to gather up all the great um, character information, and you know I, I hesitate to use the term reset button, but it, it regrounds and rebuilds Bond better than any of these other movies on their own. So um, I would still have to put Skyfall first, and I think I would have to put. Wow, you know this sounds. The more I talk it out, um, I think I would still have to put. Casino Royale second because it so broke the mold of what we had seen. But, you know, right next to it is Spectre because it's a welcome return to the original formula. Um, and then you've got Quantum, which, you know, I think we can all sort of jokingly say, oh, well, it's the worst of the Craig films, but it's still a movie that has merit and it still is a movie that, that, is part of that journey for the character. And I really appreciated getting to rewatch that. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's almost unfair to put Spectre down there as third, because I feel like it is kind of at a tie with uh, Casino Royale. You know what the coolest thing about this question is that the choices are really hard. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. and <laughs> I think when you say like the worst Craig film mm-hmm. is easily better than some of the best other actors films. Sure. Easily. Sure. Um, I, I think that Quantum being at that, with the exception of Goldeneye, I think is better than any of Pierce's films. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, but Goldeneye was just great because it was just the right thing, but that's not what you're asking. Um, gosh. That's a really, really, really hard question. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Because I think that you can't, I don't, I, I, it's like if you, if you put one on top of the other, it feels like it diminishes the work as a whole. You know, um, yeah. each one of these things really builds successively atop the other one. And I think that because Casino was so strong and that Quantum was such a bridge, I don't think Skyfall would be as good as it, good as it is if it wasn't for the other two. Same thing with Spectre. I don't think that Spectre would be nearly as good as it is if it just didn't build upon the momentum of Skyfall. But if you had to, if after Desert Island, this scenario, and I could only pick one movie to go with me as my top, it would be Casino Royale Mm. for me. I loved, and I'm slicing my tiebreakers really thinly here, and I'm looking at it for every single possible spec gram of value from movie to movie to movie. And for me, still, the opening credit sequence of Chris Cornell's lyrics and that really awesome animation just instantly, instantly makes me feel like this is an Ian Fleming film. And as great as Adele's song is, it's a great song, but I don't think it's a great credit sequence. I think Chris Cornell's is a great song and a great credit sequence, and it instantly grounds me back in the 1960s, but also in 2005 at the same time. The highlights for the film, seeing the DB5 again and how he won that mm-hmm. was mind-blowing. I'm like, that's how he got the car? That's how you're going to rewrite the car for today's day and age? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I thought Lashif was great, and I felt that the whole thing with poker and how that just informs you how Bond learned and also the only other film that has Felix Leiter in it. 
there, these are just the very, very slimmest of tiebreakers. But for me, it has to be Casino first, Skyfall second, Spectre, then Quantum. I love that we're not uh, all the same. I, I'm like John. For me, it is still Skyfall is number one. And um, strangely enough, I think uh, for me, it is an absolute tie between Spectre and Casino. Uh, those two are tied, so really they're I would they're it, they're both number two. There's no number three here for me, uh, and n- number three is is Quantum. And like you said, what I love is that I find Quantum to be more enjoyable than just about any other Bond film by any other person, <laughs> uh, whether it's Pierce, whether it's uh, Dalton, or more. Uh, the only one that um, he can, he he really kind of beats there is is um, Connery's uh, diamonds, diamonds are forever. forever. That's that's mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. most uh, things do. Yeah, yeah so, sure. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I might even and watch some of the Pierce's films, later films, over <laughs> diamonds are forever. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> so yeah, this movie is so good. I I really. I'm so glad that it, it lived up to my expectations and it actually surpassed them because for me, I wanted it to just be better than Quantum and it really surpassed that and it did some things that were just, I didn't expect it to go where it did with the love story thing and I'm, uh, I love that it did because it, it brings back my heart, which is Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, so I'm, I'm so glad we got there. Um, one of the cool things about doing this Bond retrospective is that we got our first voicemail from a listener, Lee, who is uh, living in Scotland, and he sent us a fantastic voicemail. So we're going to listen to that, and then we'll talk about it when it's over. Hey, guys. Uh, my name's Lee. I'm a longtime listener of the 602 Club, though I tend not to listen to the Superman episodes. But um, I've really enjoyed listening to your James Bond build-up to, to Spectre. I just listened to your Skyfall episode just as I was going in to see Spectre for the third time today. It's quite fascinating being a Brit and hearing what you Americans think of someone that's our British superhero, Some, you know, hearing your opinions on British iconography. And it's, it's been really enjoyable to hear the debates and discussions. I've been a Bond fan for two decades of my, you know, nearly 30 years that I've been on, been here. And, you know, I love, love James Bond. But Skyfall, for me, is such a special, special movie. It feels very timeless that there's so much, and it feels more real than any other Bond movie. Let, let me elaborate on that. For me, Bond movies have never really been based in and around Britain. You know, it, you have the odd bit here and there, but you, you never get a feel of it as this being a, James, a place that James Bond lives and breathes. I live in Scotland. I once lived just around the corner from where Sean Connery used to deliver milk. And um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it was so good to see James Bond here in Scotland. When I w- was 28 earlier this year, I was lucky enough that my girlfriend drove me up for my birthday treat up to Glencoe. Glencoe is where they filmed the scene where Bond and M are looking at the beautiful Scottish Highlands just as they're approaching Skyfall Lodge. And it was such a special moment to be walking in Bond's footsteps. And that's something that we don't really get here in the UK. It's very difficult to follow 
follow in Bond's footsteps as he's always someone that's so far from our reach visiting such glamorous locations but it's it's hard to get that here even when I've been in London I think every time I go I think in the past year and a half I've been to the Bond in Motion which is the the car museum three times because I can't stay away I have to have to see the cars it's it's such a thrill and Skyfall being so close to home has given me a chance to see other little things. A few months ago, I went to the National Museum where Q meets Bond to give him his gadget and um, passed to Shanghai, and I got to see the photo with the bloody big ship and various other things. I was at a Star Trek live show the other week, and it was only a 20-minute walk out of the way, but I dragged my girlfriend to see M's house from Skyfall. Even though it's only in it for a few seconds, it was somewhere that I was able to go. After that, she asked, could we, could we visit MI6? And I was like, yeah, of course. So we got on the tube and, and visited the MI6 building. It, it was very, very cloudy that day, so uh, misty that day, so it added a bit of a kind of spooky appeal to it. I think one thing that goes over pretty much everyone but British fans' heads in regards to Skyfall is why the debate about you know Britain's world and the place was so important at the time just before about you know six months before Skyfall was released we had the Olympic Games here and the opening ceremony was a lot about British imagery and what makes us proud and one of them involved James Bond collecting the Queen herself and they both jumped out of the helicopter into the Olympic Stadium it was quite a sight but Britain at that time was it was a struggle between where does Britain really belong in the world? And it was a question Britain was asking itself internally. Where I come from, Scotland, and where Sean Connery and James Bond himself comes from, Scotland was debating whether it wanted to stay part of that union. And it you know, almost tore Scotland apart, this, this huge debate of do we want to be part of Britain? Are we two separate things? And that so many of the questions people were debating, you know, M with her speech that Bond himself about what is Britain's place in the world was a question we were all asking ourselves. And for me, you know, I don't want it to sound like my opinion politically was biased by because of James Bond, but when I look at James Bond, especially Skyfall, I feel a pride to be British, which I, I really get. I'm not a patriot, and patriotism is something that's is quite rare here in this country. But you look at Skyfall and you feel proud to be British you you feel that you belong in this world that it's it's something so great to be united together from that we may all have our differences difference of opinions about how to make the, the world work but together we're stronger and better and it was it was a fascinating movie at a fascinating time in our country as we debated where do we belong in this country Skyfall, you know, has taken on an extra importance for me that um, my grandfather passed away a few months ago. And just before he passed away, I sent up a picture that meant a lot to us. And I put on the back the, the, the M speech that she gives at the committee hearing about not to, you know, that even though we've become old, that we don't give in. And, you know, I sent that up and I know it, the poem itself had some special meaning to my grandfather when he had read it. So whenever I watch the movie now, I spare a thought of my grandfather, someone that served in the, the British Navy, and even at his funeral, he had the 
you know, the British flag draped over it. He had his uh, navy cap, quite similar to the one you saw in You Only Live Twice. So I think that's what makes Skyfall such a special movie and one that will be very hard to replicate for, for me because Skyfall feels realer than any other James Bond movie because you can reach out and touch it. It's that you see an amazing hollowed out volcano, you see James Bond, you know, gambling away at the highest chips possible. But Skyfall felt so personal that it spoke to so many British people, to so many fans. It felt real that we could we could walk onto the sets, that we could feel like James Bond. I feel that like I'm going through a quarter-life crisis just now because I've just purchased the the barber jacket that James Bond wears when he's at the hunting scene in, in Skyfall um, at the lodge. And it's, you know, I don't think, being quite a small guy, I don't think the jacket suits me as well as it suits Daniel Craig, but it's another part of the James Bond movie that feels real, feels that you can touch it, that you can walk around in that jacket and feel like Bond. And as much as I've enjoyed Spectre, it had that slight disconnect. It felt like more like a fan watching the movie. But with Skyfall, I felt like I could be part of it, that I could follow in Bond's footsteps and have those amazing moments that he has, whether it's looking at the bloody big ship, whether it's walking around where James Bond lived up in Glencoe, whether it's putting on the jacket and walking through Scottish streets. I feel that special connection to Skyfall and it's it's really magic. I just wanted to thank all you guys. It's been it's been fascinating to listen to you. With much of the six oh two club episodes, I find myself listening, agreeing with the panel, then times I'm sitting in my car going Matthew or John or whoever going, where did you get this idea from? And it's almost like I'm playing along at home, but, I, you know. And when Matthew mentioned at the start of the show that you hadn't received a wee voicemail, I thought, I'm, I'm going to send one. Just just a few thoughts and something that I would maybe maybe see in the car if I was part of the, the group discussion. Um, keep up the good work. It, it's, it's a really fascinating podcast series. You know, I love that I don't always agree with what you guys say and that we could all love a movie, whether it's a James Bond movie or a Batman movie, and we can all disagree, whether at home or on the show. Um, and I just wanted to, to give you that message. I'm sure it's been a bit of a trek to listen to this tedious one-man discussion, but uh, I just wanted to say thank you, and please do keep up the great work. It's It's been a staple of my podcasting week. All the best, and remember, nobody does it better. Thank you. Bye. Guys, what a fantastic thing to receive uh, a voicemail that is so personal. Uh, and, and to hear, I think, what it means for somebody who is British and their superhero. I, it just, it floored me w that they, they sent it, one, and, and that, two, Lee um, really dove into to what Skyfall had meant to him as, as a Bond fan and somebody who um, it gave, it gave him a new sense of patriotism almost, you know, uh, of being very proud to be British. And what a great thing for a film to be able to do for somebody. Uh, I think we should all go hang out with Lee. Absolutely. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Yeah, no, it's there's something very interesting about, you know, national identity and the and the pop culture heroes that we have. Um you, you know, 
the U.S. cranks out so many movies and so many TV shows that just sort of get absorbed by the rest of the world. Um, but we don't really have an equivalent. Uh, and I mean, maybe you can kind of make the argument now about how the Marvel superheroes uh, have really taken on this huge life of their own. And, and there's such anticipation about those movies. But But there's something about looking at James Bond, the Beatles, the rest of the British invasion, the Who, the Rolling Stones, whatever, that is so tied to that national identity of being British that is very different from the kind of pop culture exports that that we tend to crank out here. There's something really special about that because – then it sort of leads us to to uh, take all of that in and kind of think like, oh, you know what? No, now maybe I understand a little something about what it is to to have that identity and to have that sort of national pride. You know, there is something really special about that, um, and, and I'm glad that uh, that the rest of the world gets to share in it. And and thanks, Lee, for sending in that voicemail. You're the first for the 602 Club, which is fantastic. That puts you at in a very special place in our hearts, you know, because we love bringing all this great content to all the listeners out there. On the Babel Conference, when this show drops, on the Babel Conference, take a look at some of the photos that he posted on the Skyfall thread because you'll see some of these great moments that he was able to capture almost scene for scene where some of the uh, events at Skyfall took place. And I think that's also fantastic. But you're right, John. I think that uh, when we send out, say, like Superman out to the world, you know, um, everyone understands that Superman's fighting in Metropolis. Metropolis is New York City. Mm-hmm. There's a certain sense of nationalism and pride that we that we have when we watch a film filmed in one of our great cities, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. Especially when, you know, The Dark Knight Returns was filmed in Chicago. You could see Navy Pier. You could see the Sears Tower. Um, you know, all of the great landmarks of, of our national pride. But what Lee was talking about in this particular voicemail was his national pride, seeing all of these great landmarks and in allowing that to be personal for him, like when we see the, the MI6 building blow up, as Americans, we see this building blow up. As him, he sees that. I mean, he probably has driven by that countless times. And it's just, it's there for him. But now it's something that, like, wow, something, you know, from my own culture, from my own homeland, you know, it's like now it's in a film. Or, in, you know, in Scotland, you know, these scenes are part of this film. You can actually take a great amount of pride in it. I think it's really important for just to share that point that this is like James Bond always is this global superhero. He's a globetrotter. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a superhero globetrotter, which is awesome. And he takes us along that journey, which is the hallmark of a really good James Bond film, it, that you can go along with him. You're part of the baggage. It's kind of like his, his entourage, if you will. You know, so I, I, you know, I think that's great. And I think that's great that Lee was passionate enough to share that, that story with us. Um, and, you know, for anyone else, you know, who you feel, if you feel strongly about something that we've talked about on the 602 Club, whether it's been this James Bond series or Star Wars with the Star Wars feeds that Matthew does with, you know, all of his other, his Jedi masters that he talks to, feel free to call in. You know, this isn't just a one-time thing. You know, we're always happy to, to entertain your phone call and to talk about it and get and get deep, deep, deep dive fandom with you. <laughs> the fact that, you know, I, what's been so amazing to me is just to meet people from around the world like this because of of something as innocuous as is 
spouting off as if I really know anything about anything uh, about film or whatever and just share my opinion and have other people listen to that and either agree or disagree and have a conversation about that. It's been uh, fantastic. And so, yeah, thank you so much, Lee, for sending that in. It, it really has meant uh, the world to us to get an opportunity to actually have a conversation with you. You said things, we said things back, and it, it makes for such a great conversation. So uh, I'm so glad that we got the opportunity to wrap up our Craig conversation with understanding just a little bit of what it means to be a Bond fan, but also to actually be British. In the same way that you were saying, Norm, uh, kind of the way that we feel, uh, you know, as Americans with, you know, Superman. You know, he, he's a very American superhero. Yes, he's he's worldwide, but he's also born and bred right here in the United States, there in Seatown in Cleveland. You know, that's where he was born. So I, I think it means so much to us. So uh, appreciate that. Hopefully uh, anybody else will send us a voicemail. Make sure you check out all the shows on iTunes at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. If you're not on iTunes... You can find us on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website at trek.fm, and you can also grab the RSS link there as well. I want to say a special thanks to our associate producers through Patreon, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. These two guys make this show possible for you each week through Patreon. Now, we're a listener-supported network, and what that means is that it takes the listeners giving their support to us to make this show happen. And so if you'd like to support us and make sure that that continues, go to patriot.com slash trekfm. We have some amazing gifts to give back to you. We have the patron zone at patreon.zone where anyone $5 or more per month can go in. You get the shows early. You get exclusive content that nobody else can get. Lots of fun stuff there. And, of course, we also have the Patreon roundtable for people to be involved with the hosts from the network every month on their own podcast. It's fantastic. And, in fact, our executive producer, along with me and Norm, Christopher Jones, has just updated all the Patreon perks. And so there's some great things that are coming down the pipeline for everyone. Um, Guys, I can't believe that we're done with the, the Craig Bond films. Uh, we, uh, got it. I gotta say, because of the response that we have gotten on the Babel conference decided that next year, we're going to slowly work our way through the older films. Uh, we're going to probably get, uh, about six films in next year. So it'll take us a little while. Uh, but I'm very, very excited to be talking more bond next year, but make sure before we go, let everybody know where they can find you online and about the different podcasts you do. John. Sure. So uh, you can usually find me wearing a Nehru jacket and plotting world domination from uh, Roddenberry Central. And um, oh, Don't let that cat hair get all over you, though. No, well, I'm allergic anyway, so we okay, got to cut good. that right out. Um, <laughs> but uh, working on Mission Log podcast. So Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, every week we do a deep dive into the morals, meanings, and messages of Star Trek. So you can find us at missionlogpodcast.com and on all your social media, Mission Log Pod. And what about you, Norm? Okay, so I'm going to deviate for a second here before I get into my credits because I love the fact that John brought up the Nehru jacket because Christoph Waltz wearing a Nehru jacket equals Blofeld 
without question. <laughs> Even better, picking off cat hair off his navy jacket is something that none of our previous Blofelds have ever done. Right. Well, Obviously, it's got to happen. Fact. I mean, that cat has to shed like crazy. I mean, oh, yeah. my, like my mother-in-law kind of like has a coon. cat just like that, and <laughs> yeah. there's hair everywhere. So that being said, the neighbor jacket always wins. Always wins. And my prediction, my prediction for a possible Dr. No wearing that same kind of neighbor jacket. Imagine a very slick-backed, haired Benedict Cumberbatch with metallic hands. Ooh. I like the way you think. I like the way you think, Norman. That's my prediction, Mm -hmm. my prediction. So um, you can always find me here uh, on Trek FM as one of the executive producers for the network. You can also find me as one of the hosts for Warp 5 our dedicated enterprise podcast along with Will Wynn, who's our content coordinator, who also runs the Roundtable, one of our patron specials on the Patreon program. You can also find me daily on the Babel Conference. That's our dedicated Trek FM listeners page on Facebook. You can also find me on the Axonar fan group page on Facebook because I am a huge supporter of that project as an independent Star Trek film. And you can also find me as well you will be able to find me uh in the future fairly soon as the new host for standard orbit which is the trek fm dedicated original series podcast where i will be personally ripping off every single thing that john champion and ken ray have said on mission log cool hey you know imitation Sincerest form of flattery. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. I feel enormously <laughs> flattered. Yeah, we have more great content coming to you from Trek FM, as always. You guys can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Um, I'm also on Instagram at NRushing, where also Trek FM is now on Instagram. So check us out at Trek FM on Instagram. I do The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. And I'm also on Literary Treks with Dame, where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Also, interview the different authors with the newest books coming out, so check that out. You can also find me on my own personal blog at 42alifeinbetween.wordpress.com. And until next time, James Bond will return in Dr. No. Dr. No.